Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Does New England have its own lake monster? Who or what is the Rugaru? Are there Pukwudgies scampering around southeastern Massachusetts? Hello, and welcome to the 883rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app uh, from TalkStream Live and TuneIn.com. I'm Ben, and those cryptic questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, we bring you a familiar guest about a, uh, well, an exciting new TV series, and if you'd like to join us on the air, you can give us a call, 401-766-1240, that's from anywhere. Or if you want to get a question to us, you can email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com or get to us via various uh, social media platforms. Coming to us via Skype today is Alexander Petikov, a regular on the show and one of our merry band of field researchers, particularly in the Pennsylvania Triangle case. Alec was born in South Africa in 1993, the last year of apartheid in that country, to parents who had fled the Civil War in the former Yugoslavia. He grew up in the United States and holds a degree in communications from Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. Traveling across the U.S. and the world, Alexander has looked into various cryptozoological creatures, such as Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, the Lake Champlain Monster, mystery big cats, as well as other Fordian phenomena, such as UFOs and mysterious places ranging from the Bridgewater Triangle of Massachusetts to the Hermit Kingdom of North Korea. He is executive producer of the new TV series, Chasing Legends. His website, PetikovMedia.com. So, Alexander Petikoff, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you guys for having me. It's awesome to be back here with you guys. Uh, it's, you know, amidst all the craziness that has been 2020 and the pandemic, uh, it's just nice to be back with some familiar faces. Right? That's great. Well, you are a dear friend. Indeed. Especially in such odd odd days that we live in. But I guess, you know, let's just hop right into the meat and potatoes of it. So tell us about the series Chasing Legends and what legends have you been chasing? Sure. So Chasing Legends is the basic idea. Uh, it's it kind of uh, right in the name there. It implies you were chasing legends. So uh, mostly focused on cryptozoological things. So cryptid, these are uh, mysterious or unknown animals previously undiscovered creatures. There's a little bit of a paranormal element to it. Some cryptids perhaps are more paranormal than others. Uh, a friend of mine, Nash Hoover, kind of came up with the idea, and actually it was uh, end of 2019 into 2020, early 2020, when he contacted me saying, oh, we're hoping to start filming our first season. We'd like to come out to Massachusetts to do an episode on the puck wedgies of the Bridgewater Triangle. Would you want to be a guest investigator, and maybe do you know anyone in the area who might have some stories to tell. And, of course, I reached out to Paul, one of the first people I reached out to. So Paul is in, will be in the Chipukwudgie episode, as well as John Horrigan, who's a friend of mine, uh, who has researched a lot in the Bridgewater Triangle back in the day. So that's kind of where it came from. And it wasn't until we filmed the first episode, which happened to be three days before Massachusetts went into a lockdown. This was in March of 2020. I, I'll never forget it. Paul, you'll remember that. Oh, that I'll never time. forget it either. Yeah. We were out there filming, and uh, three days later, everything, the world shut down. So that was that last sort of bit of normalcy. After that, we filmed that episode. I came on as an executive producer and, uh, and an investigator as well on the show, so helped put together the rest of the episodes. And the goal was to look at 
four very different mysteries across the country. Obviously, it was very difficult to do during 2020 of all years. I think this kind of thing would be hard to pull off regardless of when you do it. Um, as I said, it was four different cryptids. So in total, we have the four, and they're in four different areas of the country. So the Pukwajis, of course, in Massachusetts. We also have the Lake Champlain monster in Vermont slash New York, Lake Champlain. Then we have the Rougarou of Louisiana down in the Bayou country and the Mogollon monster, which is a Bigfoot-like creature found in the Mogollon Rim of Arizona. So we, uh, you know, we have a, a crew and we are all from basically different parts of the country. We have most of the crew is from Minnesota. We also have um, uh, one of the producers from California and then myself from New England. So we're really on three different time zone. So getting everyone together is tough, especially yeah. during this year, but mm-hmm. somehow we managed to pull it all off and now we are in the process of releasing the episodes. Very good. Okay, Ben, uh, why don't we go jump right into a question from our uh, very um, uh, excellent questioner, Peter from Bogota, Colombia. Our tenacious listener, Peter in Bogota, writes, uh, one recurring challenge in a show of this type is how do you satisfy the audience if you don't find anything? Uh, the crew was searching for a long time with night vision and nothing happens. Uh, my suggestion would be to do reenactments of actual uh, dr- of actual dramatic cases or encounters during the show. Uh, what do you think would be a possible solution as uh, this will continue to occur searching with no dramatic result? Sure, that's a good question. I think we try to keep it as authentic as possible and break the mold from the usual reality TV programming where there will be a night investigation, there's dramatic music, and there is, you know, either total fabrication of what happens, you know, they make up what happens, or they do something for dramatic effect. Uh, We purposely don't want to do that. We want to keep it as authentic and tell you, hey, look, we went out here. We spent a night in this area. We may or may not have had anything happen. We had a few incidents on some of the episodes, but nothing, you know, very definitive. And then, you know, we kind of just lay that out there. And and how do you make it interesting? Throughout the course of the episode, you have to talk about the history of the region. We do a lot of talking, interviewing folks who are investigating the phenomenon, as well as people in the area. Um, So we just put out our Lake Champlain episode, and that episode is much more interview heavy. We we interview a lot more eyewitnesses than we did for, say, the Mogion Monster episode, which is probably the one he's referring to, where we had three interviews and then a night investigation, which was about almost half of the episode, where we did have some strange stuff happen up there in this wooded area of Arizona, where you have lots of other wildlife. We had elk bugles going on uh, during the night uh, movement. Uh, myself and one of the camera guys, as we split up during our night investigation, we had some kind of a Wood knock. I mean, it sounded like a wood knock that you sort of hear with Bigfoot phenomena. I've heard similar stuff like that in other parts of the country out there at night, and it's it's eerie when that sort of thing happens. Um, and we just try to portray it as accurately as possible. Like I said, we don't fabricate or exaggerate or put dramatic music to make people sit on the edge of their seats. We kind of just keep it authentic and uh, show our experiences, and then at the end, wrap it all up and say, well, you know, this is what we had happen. We can't necessarily close the, the book on this case. It may have to be revisited, and uh, you know, it's very hard to definitively determine whether something is real or not based off of a few days, but it kind of gets you a better idea of what may be going on. Hmm. Right. Well, I mean, the format can only allow so much, too, right? Sure. There's only so much you can kind of fit into a certain time period. And I, I, it seems like it's pretty fluid, right? Like, you know, going from more on on-site 
kind of experiences to more interview heavy do you find that one particularly works better for the other or does it or does the case kind of dictate the format i would say the case dictates the format more so uh, generally the format is you know we sort of do a it's it's we're taking you along for the journey with us so uh, we'll start with our intro montage done by John Horrigan, excellent narrator, and then we'll intro on the show, and then sort of a montage of us traveling or en route to the location, and then we start doing segments. We'll talk about it. Hey, we're going to go meet with this person. He's going to tell us a little bit more about this case, and then we'll do the interview. From there, usually we try to do a daytime investigation to get kind of a feel for the area. It's never really a good idea to just run into an area at night that you've never been into, especially when you're dealing with mountain lions and rattlesnakes or alligators and water moccasins and areas that, you know, creatures that very well could be fatal were they to uh, attack you. So you want to get a feel for the area. So that's, that's the general format. And then we'll do, like I said, the interviews and go from a daytime investigation into a night investigation. And, um, and like I said, it's fluid. And in, in, for example, in the champ episode, the night investigation is, is a lot shorter. You know, it's very hard when you're out there in a kayak in the middle of a lake and, there's uh, 80 feet of water beneath you, and you know there's slight waves coming through, and you've got all this gear on this little kayak that's shaking uh, back and forth. Uh, so it's a little bit different than being out in the woods in, say, uh, Arizona or in the swamps in Louisiana, where you are you know, on flat ground. You're able to stay out there for a longer period of time than you would be in a boat or in, like, the Bridgewater Triangle, where it was March New England weather. So you can only stay out at night so long until you yeah, really start feeling cold. Yeah, it was a brutal, brutal uh, night, but we still stayed out for about three hours uh, yeah. during our investigation in the Freetown State Forest. I was a little younger. I would have been with you. <laughs> but uh, you've done a lot of work here in New England, uh, and uh, particularly with the uh, Lake Champlain monster at Champ is known, but also uh, with Bigfoot in the White Mountains. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that, that for us in New England here, uh, before uh, – our good friend Michael Mitchell, the the, the artist, uh, translated a few years ago. Mm. Uh, you you would uh, be known to have made it in New England as a paranormal investigator if Michael had turned you into a cartoon character, and uh, you, you, he did that with you regarding. Uh, and it's a really great likeness in the comic book of, of you investigating the uh, New Hampshire cases of Bigfoot in the White Mountains. Can you talk talk a little bit about that that scenario uh, in uh, in New Hampshire? with Bigfoot. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, that was sort of funny. That was, uh, you know, Michael had contacted me asking if there were any Bigfoot sightings in New Hampshire. I had said, you know, oh, <laughs> of course. And I, I started hitting him with some links and he was kind of blown away. He was thinking of doing a comic on that topic. And broader story to that is that a place like New Hampshire, a lot of the states in New England are very forested, particularly in northern New England. We're talking Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. There's a lot of woods. Maine is the most forested state in the U.S. per forest, you know, the amount of forest. And New Hampshire is number two after that. So there's a lot of great habitat. We have a lot of moose, a lot of black bear, uh, bobcat, uh, plenty of deer. I mean, there's plenty of food sources. Uh, moose are very large animals. I mean, they can get up to 1,200 pounds. <laughs> and they all thrive. have our I mean, moose stories. Oh, yeah. And I mean, there's thousands and thousands upon them in, in northern New Hampshire and Maine and even in southern New Hampshire. In the area I go to frequently, I, there's a population of moose there that's there year round. And I mean, we're talking maybe only about an hour from Boston itself. So there's a lot of habitat. And that being said, there's a lot of stories. Now, there are Bigfoot stories through, throughout the state. You'd think most of them would be up in the White Mountains. 
but they're actually not because that's where the least amount of population lives. Sure, you have uh, you know little towns and settlements, and the sightings usually happen on the edges of town, but they don't happen in the middle of the White Mountain National Forest where there's nobody walking through. They tend the mo- more sightings in New Hampshire tend to be in the southwestern and central western part of the state where there's actually uh, it's very rural, but there's a fair amount of population out there in terms of houses, you know, maybe people that live out in the woods and their nearest neighbor is a mile away or uh, they can vaguely see their neighbor's house. Those are the kinds of areas those people deal with all woodland critters in their yard all the time. And that's actually where a lot of sightings happen in New Hampshire, other parts of the state as well. Southern New Hampshire, even into the seacoast, as I mentioned, Maine has a lot of woods too. So it's pretty much contiguous forest from Maine into New Hampshire, into Vermont. I mean, animals certainly travel through those areas I, the only natural barriers you'd have, I suppose, would be rivers, such as the Connecticut River in, um, in between Vermont and New Hampshire and the, the Saca River then in Maine and New Hampshire on that border. So there's a lot of sightings. And New Hampshire was clear-cut several times, as the rest of New England was hundreds of years ago, uh, cleared away for agriculture and land. That pushed a lot of species out. But with the return of forest and now lots of protected forest, and whether it be state forest, national forest, private conservation areas throughout the state of New Hampshire. There's a lot of uh, woods, and that has brought back the moose, the black bear, deer population. These animals have begun to return. Some would argue the mountain lion, as as uh, we've discussed before, and then you know, Paul oh, yeah. is in my documentary about that subject, Lines of the East. But with that being said, there are older sightings of, of Bigfoot-like creatures in New Hampshire. There's logging stories from northern New Hampshire about wood devils, these creatures that were described as you know, tall, hairy creatures that would hide behind trees, and you could almost walk into one before seeing it. They let out terrible screams at night. And this uh, story is, I believe, from the end, uh, around the 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s, uh, when logging was a heavy industry up there. It still is a heavy industry up there, but at that time especially, it was you know, cities like Berlin, New Hampshire, known as you know the city that the trees built, because that was a logging city. You had lots of these immigrant populations moving to a place like Berlin and working in the lumber yards and the paper mills and that sort of thing. So these people were out in the woods all the time, and they would have strange stories. Now, there's one particular story which I really enjoy, which I was told uh, by a woman at uh, the Dover Library in Dover, New Hampshire, when I did a Grant State Bigfoot talk uh, in January of 2020. She said that her grandfather, I believe, was a prison camp guard at a POW camp in Stark, New Hampshire, which is way in the middle of Coaz County, middle of nowhere, uh, German POWs during the Second World War were housed there and were put on logging duty and you know, lots of other manual labor sort of stuff. Uh, there's actually a famous case where one of the inmates escaped and uh, was captured in New York City. There's a book written about that. It's sort of a famous escape story. But supposedly the grandfather of this woman said that these German POWs would complain when going out in the woods that they were frightened by seeing gorillas out in the woods. Uh, so, you know, why would these people who have no connection to the folklore or, or lore in that area where there happens to be wood devil stories are describing gorillas and you know, refusing to go back into the woods because they see gorillas ostensibly in the woods of rural New Hampshire? It just doesn't really add up um, unless you connect it perhaps to this larger Bigfoot Sasquatch kind of story. So there's a lot of sightings throughout the state. I mean, up until um, modern times, you have plenty of stories all over. Yeah, Ben, you look like you have a question. Oh no, I'm 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 silently listening, and it's <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting because it's not like 
you know, you can you can make make a claim that someone is is just saying, oh, well, I'm seeing big Bigfoot. It's interesting that they use the word gorilla ra- rather than you know, because I don't think there's really anything applicable in German folklore, right? To the best of my knowledge, anyway. And and it's um, it's one of those things where it's almost like a culture shock, and it's always fascinating to me. And I think you've experienced this more than enough times firsthand, just how different cultures, even in the same country, right? Because America is effectively seven different countries kind of rolled into one and how everybody kind of experiences the same things in with with different perspectives. Now, I'm, I'm going to guess that through through your work, you've you've had the, the pleasure of having to see this. Now, have you found with any of any of your investigations so far any sort of parallels you could draw between any of them? Oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest strong factors in terms of the Sasquatch phenomena is the startling amount of similarities you have between stories that people have or encounters they claim to have had in different parts of the country, even into Canada. You know, well, they'll have same sort of behaviors that are being reported in New England as it as is in Alberta or in Arizona. I mean, it's it, it it speaks to a consistency that's found with species. You know, where you have similar behaviors, similar sort of things. So we're talking about stuff like wood knocking, where you have sticks or rocks being banged together almost in a communicative way, and that's actually something that chimpanzees use as a a form of communication. Uh, whooping and hollering and vocalizations. Obviously, primates are very vocal. You know, as primates ourselves. You know, I don't need to say much about that, but chimps and gorillas and orangutans, you know, they vocalize and let each other be known. Presence of smell in a lot of encounters, where you'll have, uh, in the Florida and down south, they call them skunk apes. So uh, either because it lives in such a musky, swampy environment or there's a smell associated. But in about like 40, maybe less than 40% of encounters all across North America, you have people reporting putrid smells, either uh, as a, sulf- a sulfur-like smell, a rotting meat smell, wet dog. A lot of people have described them, but I've heard even personally, a monkey house smell. You know, say it smells like the monkey house at the zoo. Um, that sort of thing. And it, it's not described in every encounter, which is interesting because gorillas can actually control their scent glands when they're agitated or angry to uh, use it as a deterrent. They will they will release that uh, their body odor essentially. Whereas humans, we can't control it. We just sort of sting. Uh, if we're not, you know, <laughs> staying um, hygienic, but the gorillas can actually control it. So you have these behaviors that are being reported across North America, various civilizations going back centuries, uh, even to the Native American times and the indigenous peoples, that are very reflective of known ape behaviors. In some cases, some of the behaviors reported, such as these wood knocks and um, some of this sort of stuff, the smell was not even known uh, a behavior when it was reported in North America. And it wasn't until later that we realized, well, chimps do this or gorillas can actually do this. So that, that is really interesting. You have tribal artwork from British Columbia and into Canada of these face masks and costumes that look like ape costumes and uh, facial features that primatologists have looked at and said, this looks like, you know, what a chimp does when it's baring its teeth or, or hooting, you know, um, so how would these isolated tribes be able to articulate what ape facial features might possibly look like in the rainforest of British Columbia? Now, to add back to your point, Ben, about uh, you know, the use of the word gorilla. So you have throughout North America, you know, at least when colonization began, 
all these old newspapers which will report, and I have a, a big collection of them. I'd be happy to forward it to somebody if they were interested, hmm. of uh, newspaper clippings talking about wild man sightings. Now, there were people back in the day that you know, kind of lived wild and maybe became acclimated to living in the woods, and uh, mental health was not something that was really taken um, seriously back then. So you can imagine people maybe that were mentally handicapped were shunned from society and lived off in the woods. You had hermits, you had mountain men, a lot of people that lived out in the woods. So certainly some of that could be the wild man sightings. But you have descriptions that describe, you know, an eight-foot-tall, hairy wild man was seen outside of town, or the Winstead wild man in Connecticut, for example, where a man and his bulldog were picking blueberries in the late 1800s and thought they saw a bear until it stood up on two legs and looked like a hairy man. And it led to a chase where people in town with uh, rifles were trying to find this creature or whatever it may have been. Stories of uh, tribes of hairy wild men living in the Rocky Mountains. And these are all in these newspaper clippings from back in the day. Of course, you got to take yellow journalism into account. Was there sensationalism? Probably. But what's interesting is once gorillas became uh, well-known in the lexicon in the sense that a creature gorilla when it was discovered in Africa when people were aware of what that was then they started describing these things they were seeing in North America as gorillas so it went from wild man to gorilla and then you don't have the advent of the word sasquatch really until later on you even had the abominable snowman was a, a term used before Bigfoot which was until the 1950s so now all this stuff is referred to as Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti kind of stuff but back then, it's interesting as they had to refer to it in different terms. So you had a lot of localized stories. So in Arizona, like the one we covered in Chasing Legends, the Mogion monster, which was described in the late uh, 30s and 40s by Boy Scouts that were having their camps terif uh, terrified by some sort of strange creature. They called it the Mogion monster. In Ohio, the Grassman, Wood Devils. I mean, lots of localized names across the, uh, the continent. Well, I remember... Uh not to introduce levity here, but uh, the uh, uh, odoriferous nature or the aromatic nature of some of these creatures uh, brings to mind the scene from um, the movie Monsters Incorporated, <clears throat> where uh, uh, Mike Wazowski, the, the sort of giant eyeball, is going on a date, and he asks <clears throat> Sully, who's rather Bigfoot-like, oh, can I borrow your odorant? And Sully says, yeah, I got uh, wet dog and smelly garbage. <clears throat> so I... Whether that happens before Bigfoot sightings, I don't know. In my particular encounter in Pennsylvania, there wasn't any great smell because I wasn't right next to him either. Uh, but uh, regarding uh, Pennsylvania and some of the cases you worked with us on, uh, you, you've been with me in Pennsylvania with, with some of the rest of our group, Alexander, and <clears throat> uh, several of us have had experiences there. We all saw the UFO that we, that we sure. videotaped in uh, May of 19. Uh, and I, I do notice some differences regionally because you have more experience with it than i do but in pennsylvania people often describe orangutan-like creatures you know dropping out of trees and right after my experience uh, there was the light in the tree business and and the, the woman who had who corroborated uh, my sighting by having heard it uh sure. was uh, saying that uh, the they are sometimes in the trees now that seemed to me like uh, it struck me as kind of a regional uh, oddity there, and uh, I mean, so and particularly with the Mogion monster in uh, Arizona, and I was a Boy Scout camping in New Mexico, and we had an experience with something like that in 1967. 
Uh, so I relate to that. But but the regional difference, there do seem, seem to be some regional differences as far as uh, maybe appearance is concerned. And uh, we're coming up on our break, but maybe after the after the break, you can talk a little bit about the differences uh, in appearance regionally, um, uh, albeit uh, understanding that there are uh, similarities in, in behavior. So uh, I guess we can uh, might as well take our uh, mid-show break here. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful but gray Blackstone River Valley today with our great guest Alexander Petikoff. We will be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Okay, well, there you have it. Heather Wade, our good friend, check out her show. So we're back, uh, WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our guest, Alexander Petikoff, and we're talking about chasing legends and legends he has chased. So uh, regarding that, that pre-break question, Alexander, about um, uh, different, even physical differences from region to region, uh, have you run into that at all between Arizona and Pennsylvania and New England? Sure, sure, yeah. There, there does seem to be some. I mean, um, a lot of the times, even actually one of the folks we interviewed out in Arizona who claimed to have had two face-to-face encounters uh around the Mogollon Rim, said that they, they look different each time. That's what he described. So you can imagine if this is, you know, say a species of some sort of a higher primate, something related to us, you know, there's very different people. I mean, you have people in different parts of the world. Obviously, skin tone is one thing, um, but even just physical appearances in one, you know, country's population, you'll have people that have a, a bigger nose, some have smaller noses, uh, protruding brows, you know, different physical features that would kind of speak to uh, just a genetic variety. So you do have some descriptions across the country of, and across North America, people saying it almost looked more Neanderthal-like or it was very ape-like or, no, it looked very human-like, just covered in a lot of hair. Um, but there does seem to be, down south at least, uh, the presence of a little bit more hair, shaggier perhaps, a little bit more... Uh, you know, sometimes with like a longer beard, just shaggier hair, whereas in the Pacific Northwest and uh, the Northeast and some of Appalachia and some of these areas, it, it tends to be more, uh, you know, shorter hair. It looks more gorilla-like, I'd say, in terms of, you know, the consistency of the hair. Facial features can um, vary, and they, see, they tend to be a slightly smaller in stature down south. Some people have thought, well, maybe there's a totally different creature altogether, uh, because it also seems to be a little more aggressive, at least in some in, in cases like the Falk monster in Arkansas or some of these skunk ape stories, uh, you know, wood apes, swamp apes, there's all sorts of names down south, wood boogers, that's also another term, a pretty big foot term. Uh, so there does seem to be some sort of variety. I mean, I've heard, though, in, in New England, people seeing orange-looking fur versus uh, dark black or even... Uh, famous case in southern New Hampshire, Hollis, New Hampshire, Flea Monster, as it was called, as it was seen at the flea market, which is depicted <laughs> in the comic there with uh, Michael Mitchell. That was described as almost a lightish, blondish kind of hair. And there's been stories of white ones. Now, yeah, a lot Rhode of people Island, think, you know, the, 
the Yeti would be white in, in color, but actually it's it's also des- described as being darker in color. But that could perhaps be an old age thing. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. a famous story of, up in Canada in no, way northern Ontario called Old Yellow Top, where it was described as uh, brownish fur, but it had a yellowish uh, hair on the top of the head. You know, in the in the crescent and the, the crescent shape, but in the sort of the the pointed shape of the the head that these reports typically have. So you do have a variation that could be just um, perhaps regionally. I mean, maybe as you have other species that blend in a little bit with their particular environment, natural camouflage. I mean, uh, mountain lions in in the southwest will be a little bit more dusky colored. They blend it a little better with the sand down there, whereas maybe in other environments a little bit darker to blend in with a woodland environment. So. Uh, if it is a species of some kind, you'd imagine there's some sort of regional adaptations. Uh, if you live in an aggressive environment like the south where you have hogs and gators and moccasin, water moccasins and invasive species like pythons in the Everglades, mm. maybe you have to be a little bit more aggressive in your nature. Whereas in the Pacific Northwest, you have this so many millions and millions of untouched acres that you can just kind of do your own thing and live out there and not have to deal with anybody. Uh, it depends. I mean, there's the temperament that can be... Uh, Perhaps explained by people having, you know, there's good and bad people. Maybe there are bad Sasquatch based on experience. Let's say you've had a negative experience with a hunter. You, every time you see somebody with a gun in the woods, you may throw rocks in their direction or roar and kind of make them feel unwelcome. So there's a lot of variables. There isn't really much we know. I mean, aside from the anecdotal and, and some physical evidence, there's still such a, a large body of uh, encounters, but it's all mostly a mystery. There's no really Bigfoot experts. What, no, that's true. But there's people with interesting theories. What about the Rougarou? That, that sounds vaguely uh, canine to me. What, what's the Rougarou about? Sure. The Rougarou is, is awesome. It's a basically a Cajun Louisiana werewolf. So it's very interesting. If you look at the history, it's reported as being sort of uh, multiple different entities, I guess. It, some people say, well, it can shapeshift and be other creatures. Others say it's the typical werewolf where you know, a person will transform into this hideous creature. Others say, well, it's it's a punishment. It's a punishment to become the Rougarou. You will turn into this sad creature that stalks the night and, uh, you know, you're kind of trapped in this form for a while until you're able to be freed. And others have described it as looking like a just a strange wolf-like creature, not connected to people. It's very, it depends who you ask down there in Louisiana. We had, uh, when we filmed our episode, you know, we spoke to a man who uh, grew up in rural uh, South Louisiana and said that you know his uh, grandfather had claimed to have seen it while they were out there you know doing their oysters uh, in, in the bayou and saw this thing eating oysters and you know he said it had the saddest face he'd ever seen. Mm. Uh, and uh, another Cajun guy we asked, who was our boat captain, said, "Well, my brother had seen it in that same area. It was just this large wolf-like creature that crossed the road. He's never seen anything like that before or again." Uh, but it really is really interesting because if you trace the sort of folkloric history, you have obviously the Cajun people are uh, descendants of the Acadians and the French Canadians that sort of settled in Nova Scotia and eastern Canada that were basically ethnically cleansed by the British in the 1700s and fled to, uh, at that time, was uh, either between Spanish control or French control, uh, New Orleans and Louisiana, which was you know King Louis, obviously, named after you know Louisiana. So they settled in this bayou environment, and they had stories. You still have stories to this day of the loop guru in Quebec and some of these areas where yeah. you have French stories. But in France itself has one of the most famous werewolf stories out there, the Beast of Chevadon, which was described as this creature that killed many people. And uh, some 
had theorized, well, it was a pack of uh, rabid wolves that were just raiding these villages and killing people, and that's where the real story of the werewolf came, came about. I mean, throughout Europe, you have werewolf folklore, of course, but it's very interesting to follow the Ruguru as it traveled from basically Europe to Canada, or at least what was British Canada at that time, then down to Louisiana, and how that story is still persisted, and it changed from the Loop Guru to the Rugaru as the you know the Cajun language is sort of a older uh, older form of French that is molded in with English and some Native American words. So culturally, it's a very interesting phenomenon. We have a Loop Guru tradition right here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, as a matter of fact, right down to the end of our street, which is on Woonsocket Hill, as I guess about a good part of the town is. Uh, there was a uh, there's a cave called the Devil's Hole. If you look through some of the more obscure New England traditions and legends, uh, you'll find you'll find that. Now Ben and I were there with a the film crew about what three o'clock in the morning one morning, Ben, oh, some yeah, years ago. That. Yeah, you forgot about that? No, I remember that. I remember yeah. it very well actually because uh, it was we, we were filming it for a companion piece to The Conjuring. Was that what it was for? Yes. Yep. Yeah, we we did a feature with, with, with for the release of the Conjuring 2013, but anyway, nothing happened. And I've I've uh, but you grew up here, and you had a lot of you and the kids uh, in the neighborhood had a lot of strange stories about what what went on up there, including your own experience. Um, but uh, we've talked about that before. But uh, now let's get to Champ, uh, the Lake Champlain monster. Now you've done a lot of work with that. Uh, so tell us about Champ and. Uh, a lot of witnesses, huh? Sure, yeah. Champ is uh, no secret. That's one of my favorite mysteries out there. My probably one of my favorite cryptid mysteries. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. The Bigfoot stuff fascinates me because it's so prevalent. I mean, wherever you go, basically, if there's woods in North America, chances are there's either history or sightings. Whereas Champ is something that really only is occurring in Lake Champlain. I mean, there are other lake monsters, Loch Ness and Lake Okanagan, Ogopogo. You have these stories, but Champ itself, it's only contained in one body of water, which is the massive Lake Champlain in uh, Vermont and New York, a little bit jutting into Quebec there in Canada. So, you know, I had done this series in 2018 called On the Trail of Champ, which was sort of a five-part series documenting the whole story of Champ top to bottom. This was different. This was us actively going out and talking to eyewitnesses, uh, divers, people that spend time on the lake, hearing their encounters and then actually doing our own sort of research and just hanging out in the lake at night. And uh, it was really cool to be back there after a while, you know, having been so interested in it and constantly hearing about new sightings and stories. And 2020 seemed to be an uptick in sightings and video. There was almost every weekend a new sighting reported, uh, hmm. multiple pieces of video and photo that were being taken, especially in St. Albans Bay, which is where the famous Sandra Mancy photo was taken in 1977, which is, Never been proven or disproven, still considered to be one of the best lake monster photos in the world. Uh, very recognizable. People will recognize it. It's after that Loch Ness photo, which has been debunked, it's basically the most famous lake monster photo. Uh, you know, St. Albans was having an uptick in sightings. The whole lake, I think it's either, I try to figure out why, because I was told there was a lot more people on the lake, lake this, this year than usually other years, because, you know, COVID, everything was slowed down. People were perhaps... Mm staying local or, or if they're traveling from New England or New York, they were just going to the lake instead of traveling to faraway destinations. Uh, a big factor also is that the border between the U.S. and Canada was closed. So you had these large com these large commercial ships that usually travel between the U.S. and Canada shipping goods 
that was no longer going. And that actually kicks up a lot of mud. And the visibility in the lake this year was very good because there was a lot less. Well, there usually is that blue-green algae that grows in certain bays, but the lot, the wide section of the lake, there was not as much debris being kicked up by these huge boats. So you had clarity, maybe whatever's in there was coming out more, or simply people were slowing down a little bit to actually look and observe and spend more time on the lake. So a very interesting phenomena that you know, we, we went particularly we went in September of 2020, so right kind of uh, as, as everything was going on, and it was very interesting that time to be there. But uh, no, wherever you go on Lake Champlain, you know, gas stations, shops in Vermont, you can talk to people, and chances are they either have had their own sighting or know somebody that's had a sighting. I mean, we had so many random encounters just in a gas station talking to people, and the person in, in line waiting to uh, to pay for their order, you know, will say, well, hey, uh, one of my buddies, you know, he had a sighting while fishing in this park, or, oh, my high school professor was a guy who claimed to have had a video, and he was on the Discovery Channel and talking about it. <laughs> There's all the, it's, it's almost everywhere you go, and I think that reflects in the episode uh, with, you know, the, the, the space. We, we had interviewed somebody who had had their sighting in the 1980s, and then you have a sighting that happened virtually you know, a couple of weeks before we were there. And, and there was actually a sighting the very weekend before we were there. So five days before we were there in that very bay. So Champ is a very interesting phenomenon. It's, you know, it's this lake monster that's described there, as I said. Um, and it's a pre, it's a very ancient lake. Uh, and it has a very interesting history as being part of the Champlain Sea as recently as ten to 12,000 years ago. Uh, a body of evidence that there were whales and other marine mammals and other animals and fish that lived in that lake, and many of them have adapted from uh, saltwater to freshwater, such as the sturgeon and the, the landlocked Atlantic salmon that live in the lake. So uh, it's a very fascinating body of water, and there's something mysterious going on. Well, I remember we'd go up there uh, once in a while when Ben was little, because we, we have family in Vermont, and uh, <clears throat> we would eat at, <clears throat> at a restaurant that was, uh, and they'd put you out in the summer on on these floating docks and you could eat your meal out there and ben was far more interested in watching the lake than he was uh with his, in his uh, hamburger or whatever it was. <laughs> hey, and, you never uh, know but, yeah you might come up and you can shake his flipper you know i mean good right yeah and uh however uh we haven't had any dramatic encounters there but uh we have had a few maybe with uh those old little sweethearts the puckwudgies in uh, the area of uh, particularly Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, which we don't live very far from, and really neither do you. So um, we, I, I don't know if you included them in your in your um, presentation, in your show that's coming out next week about the Puckwudgies, but we uh, had sent you some photographs of what appear to be small people that, that we got in 2010 uh, at the very place where you interviewed me for that, that episode. So uh, what's going on with the Puckwudgies? Yeah, as I mentioned, kind of when we first started out, that was the sort of, uh, that's how it started at all. I suppose Nash and the crew, they had wanted to investigate that for a while, and then being from Minnesota, it wasn't exactly, you know, uh, in walking distance or driving distance for them, so they flew out here right before everything kind of shut down, and uh, I haven't seen the episode yet. I'm, I think I will be seeing a rough cut of that or, or the final within the next day or so here, and it, obviously it's coming out on Friday, but... I do believe that we will use those photos that uh, you guys took. We interviewed Paul, as you mentioned, right in that spot. And what was interesting about doing that interview, it was beautiful. I mean, to set up the story, we basically had gone to the Asanet Ledge, which is, of course, you know, this area that's rumored to be haunted, and there's been suicides there, as well as Puckwudgie sightings in the Freetown State Forest. And we had rented out a Jeep 
for the production week, and I thought, you know, why, why are we going to need a cheaper in Massachusetts of all places? You know, this is in Arizona. I could understand, but turns out the Freetown State Forest is a great place for off-roading and mudding, and a lot of these guys, these cheap oh, yeah. fanatics, go out there. A lot so, of mud. Oh yeah. So from the Asanet Ledge to driving to to meet up with Paul, it took us a while because it was some very very gnarly terrain. And we're we're as we're driving in, we're seeing jeeps coming out that are 100% covered in mud. You know, these guys that are going out there and five or six in a row because they they go out there for the weekend and just have fun. And we're driving through, and unfortunately, one of our crew members got a little uneasy sitting there in the back with all the tossing and turning and wasn't feeling too well as we were doing an interview. But we did it right at the the Copacut Reservoir, I believe. Beautiful, right as the sun was starting to set, and Paul noticed that there was this little structure, almost a little tiny rock structure, almost American Stonehenge-esque. So we decided after we filmed our interview with Paul to hop right over there and kind of do a little investigating, figure out what this little stone is. Yeah, I had never seen that before. I discovered it while I was waiting for you. Yeah, which is very interesting. I mean, considering that, uh, you know, that's the area where you'd seen these things, and there's other reportings of Pukwudgie or small people-like encounters in that area. Obviously, we weren't too far from the Wampanoag uh, reservation area where they do their kind of yearly meeting. So, uh, very interesting. I mean, I don't know what's going on there with the Pukwudgies, but uh, it's an interesting story. And, and as we talked to people in the area too, it seemed like they were more so familiar with the cult activity and a lot of these satanic cult yeah. and murder activity, and there's been a lot of gruesome things that happened in that forest, uh, mafia killings, just given that it's you know very close to Providence and Boston and Fall River and a lot of these areas where there's been a lot of gang and mob-related activity in the past, and this was the kind of area where you know these gangland murders would happen, and uh, in addition to satanic activity and very dark stuff happening. So it's uh, there's a lot going on. I think the Puckwedge is just one part of the, the story of the Freetown State Forest, which is obviously then just a part of the Bridgewater Triangle War. Yeah. Uh, ben, you had uh, heard some stuff about the Wampanoags uh, hightailing it out of there. Yeah, I, I did hear that. But also, we actually have a caller on the line uh, with an experience about a very large turtle that he'd like to share. Okay, by all means. Sure. Well, hello there. Welcome to WON and Behind the Paranormal. Yes. Uh, when I was camping out at Lake Wickabog and with uh, East uh, West Brookfield. Everybody kept talking about a, a huge turtle, but nobody ever saw it. Hmm. The, uh, now, yeah, because in the Bridgewater Triangle area, there are lots of talk about giant snakes, giant birds. Uh, I don't know about a turtle, but it, 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 there are it's a not, lot of things. It's that, in Worcester so County. Worcester but County, yeah, okay. Yes, Lake Wickabog and okay. in, in West Brookfield. And our family used to go camping out there. We used to rent a cottage. And all I heard was people talking about this big turtle. Hmm. Wow. How, how? Excuse me, how? Uh, what? And I'm wondering how big. Uh, Alexander, uh... Why do you take over here? You probably have better questions than I have. Sure. I mean, what, what exactly did you see? Did you see the, the back of it coming out? or what, what? Tell us what you saw. I didn't see anything. I was just told of the legend of the lake. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, 
uh, there's often a lot of these places in New England, you know, these little lakes that have these stories, and I think most of them are probably explained with something like a large turtle. I mean, you have snapping turtle that can get three, four feet in diameter, you know, just a shell. People have found snapping turtle shells that are massive. I mean, these are reptiles that can live a very long time, and you know, they essentially don't, they don't really stop growing. They can keep growing, uh, and you know, turtles especially can live a very long time as can other crocodiles and alligators and other reptiles in other parts of the world. But you know, here in New England, we just have snapping turtles. I mean, I, I've had times where I've been driving and suddenly we'll see a column of cars in the middle of the woods. And like, what, why is there traffic here? There's a big snapping turtle crossing the road and he's taking his grand old time. Uh, oh, but there are these stories. So I think, you know, something like champ, I wouldn't necessarily, some people think maybe it's explained by an unexplained species of un, undiscovered turtle. But a lot of these other local stories in smaller bodies of water probably are either a very large fish or something like a large turtle. Because underneath. they said it, where we used to, me, my sister, and my brother used to go into, there's a creek at the end of the lake. And supposedly it was just off to the right-hand side of the creek. Hmm. But hmm. we never saw it. That's the problem. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, snapping turtles like those kind of environments and could hang out in those sorts of areas. I, I guess probably snapping turtle because it's the largest of the turtle species we have here. I mean, you have foxer turtles and other small ones, but they really don't get you know, larger than besides like, a small the sea uh, turtle. Plate. Sorry? I said beside the sea turtle. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, obviously you have sea turtles that come up in New England occasionally on the coast there, but the snapping turtles, like I said, are pretty much the biggest one we're going to have around here. There could be some that are, are very large in size, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for calling in. We'll keep an eye out for that situation. See if we hear any more right. about it. Thank you. All right, I'll let you know. All right. Thank you. Okay, uh, Alexander, before we burn up the hour here, uh, tell us again about uh, the series uh where people can see it, and the the debut was last Friday, was it? Yes, yeah. So you can watch it on YouTube uh, at the Chasing Legends channel. Now, sometimes when you search Chasing Legends, there is a documentary about, I think, the Tour de France or something like that that comes up. So then that's not it. It's really quite <laughs> confusing. Best place to go is probably ChasingLegendsCrew.com that has all the info, or my website, PetacodMedia.com. There's links to the YouTube and. Uh, throughout the month of February, all four episodes will be released Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern. So you have uh, last Friday was the first episode, which was, as I mentioned, the Mogion Monster, this Bigfoot-like creature. Uh, this Friday, the Champ, Lake Champlain episode. This coming Friday will be the Pukwudgie episode in which Paul is featured in. So if you want to see Paul in this episode, be uh, stay tuned for that. And then the season finale is the Rugaroo, which is, as we talked about, the werewolf of cajun folklore in louisiana and that will be the last february and friday so february is chasing legends month and after that you'll still be able to you know, go to youtube and watch it right from there and eventually it might be on some other platforms as well but for now youtube is what we're sticking with will there be a second season yes it's in there may be a second season in the works so uh, we're, we're kind of still uh obviously we're wholly focused on season one right now and getting it all out there and um kind of doing that, but uh, there, there are some plans to perhaps do uh, some further investigating. There, there, you know, there's not an, there's an abundance of these stories out there. So oh, there's, yeah. there's not like, you could spend a lifetime just searching for one cryptid, let alone uh, tossing your luck into multiple different arenas, so to speak, in, uh, in these cryptid stories. Next time you're down here, we'll have to uh, 
look into Blackie. That's my name for it, the uh, alleged Blackstone River monster. 2015, I, I have occasional luck with videos, uh, and I happened to be uh, taking a walk along the bike path in Lincoln, Rhode Island, and in an, right in our listening area here, and I heard this huge uh, uproar in the water. The, the Blackstone River, just, just to the left of the path, down a little bit of a bank. And I got the video out, and, and in the video you can see this huge head. And it looked to me almost like a python. And it mm. looked at me with, a, with a, the worst dirty look I ever got in my life. And then sw- swung away and then down into the water and there was, a, and it was gone. So, uh, the, the head of the Department of Environmental Management here in Rhode Island happens to be a friend of mine. So I sent her the video and she and one of the, one of the estate biologists, uh, didn't quite know what to make of it. And, and they said, well, probably a snapping turtle, you know, as you would, would, would describe sure. it. But, um, that, that, the pictures of that are in our, in our book, uh, the book Ben and I wrote in the 2016, the uh, Behind the Paranormal uh, to, uh, I should say, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. Uh, but sure. anyway, and, and also, um, but it was quite the interesting experience. But this this thing would just, I, I was think, I'm thinking maybe python, invasive species, but yeah. it never would have survived the winter around here. Sure, and, but, and there uh, are cases like that where in New England, especially I mean, in Maine, you had this, the West Sea, the Westbrook python a few years ago, I think in 2015 or Around that time as well, where people were reporting seeing this python in this river, and they found a snakeskin there, and that snakeskin is on display at the International Cryptozoology Museum. And some people think the skin was planted there, that it wasn't actually found in that perfect of a condition, but it was a huge, you know, python-like skin. There's been alligators and uh, lots of other strange creatures that have, you know, been released by people that perhaps get them, then the creature grows to a proportion they can't really deal with having it in the bathtub or in at home and they'll just release it. And most of these animals will probably die in the New England winter if not rescued. But there's been cases, I mean, of course, you have the famous urban legend of the sewer gators that maybe, maybe one of these gators got out of the Providence sewer system and ended up in uh, in your area. And that's may, maybe what something you have been seeing. So it's, it, yeah. that's, that's another part of it that's definitely interesting. Out-of-place creatures, you know, why did this thing end up here? Well, there was uh, one uh, rather humorous event. Uh, ben was a kid. As a matter of fact, you, Ben was camping in the woods with a friend while this was going on. Uh, a huge python, I guess, by the name of Slinky, escaped from his uh, domicile there, from his lair, and was uh, running around, well, crawling around in the woods. And uh, But they found him the following week, and he was a big celebrity. He came to the 4th of July parade in Chapatrick, Rhode Island, and everybody gave him a you know, <laughs> oh, big day. Oh, yeah. You remember that? I forgot, I forgot about there. that. Yeah. That was, that was, wow, yeah. But obviously of, not, not a cryptid, certainly. No, so, uh, no, no. What's your, what's your next adventure? Well, sure. So I'm currently actually working on a Bigfoot documentary about New Hampshire for Small Town Monsters, which is this uh, – uh, my friend Seth's uh, production company that do all sorts of documentaries about cryptids and on the trail UFOs and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and it's going to be a documentary about this Bigfoot case in southern New Hampshire where I've had some strange stuff happen and as well as a property owner involved who's had some encounters. And some of some people might be familiar to listeners, Dave McCullough, one of the oh, yeah. BFRO investigators from Massachusetts, was involved in following up on this case. So this is kind of this tangled web of uh, you know, when COVID started, I started heading out in the woods more often and having strange stuff happen. So it's a documentary called Beyond the Trail, and it's going to be about this um, Bigfoot-like encounter in uh, southern New Hampshire, this, you know, or this Bigfoot case, rather, 
or supposed Bigfoot case. And my sort of investigation into it, as well as interviews with these BFRO investigators and the, the homeowner, kind of painting a picture of what's been going on there. So definitely keeping busy. That, other adventures, you know, just uh, keeping uh, doing content for my YouTube channel as well, Sasquatch Out of the Shadows, where I do a weekly live show, live stream on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Paul's been on the show, uh, where we talk about, uh, you know, Bigfoot cryptids, all sort of topics. We actually have this Monday, coming Monday, we have uh, Jesus Pion on the show. He's a Bigfoot researcher out of New Mexico, also an actor. He uh, was in Breaking Bad and has been a lot of other movies, so it'll be fun to talk to him, and I do videos for that channel as well about you know, Bigfoot and other cryptid sort of stuff. Good, uh, b- busy young man. Uh, one of my honorary sons, Alexander Petikov, and your uh, your website is uh, petikovmedia.com, correct? Yep, that's correct. That's uh, P-E-T-A-K-O-V, media.com. That's the best place to get links. You can uh, If you go right on the film and video section or any of the links on the site, take you to social media. You can go to YouTube and either watch my channel, Sasquatch Out of the Shadows, or the Chasing Legends channel if you want to watch the episodes that we've talked about today. And links to pretty much everything on there. That's the best place to get uh, access to whatever you'd like to see. Okay, outstanding. Ben, we better get into our announcements. Yes, because we always have a plethora of announcements if I can get to them very quickly. So plans are still on for our in-person New England Parafest on uh, April 10th and 11th in Kittery, Maine. Wow, that's only, what, two months away now? Uh, uh, we, yeah. We plan to be there uh, both days, and uh, but we will do a live broadcast of the show from there on Sunday at noon. Uh, then we're scheduled to speak uh, at uh, that afternoon at 3 p.m. Uh, other speakers will include Shane Searway, Andy Kitt, Dennis Stone, uh, Nomar Slevik, the Connecticut Paranormal Research Team, Kristen Evans, uh, Dave McCullough, of course, uh, Lynn Nickerson, and Tom D'Agostino, and you can check that out on Facebook, New England Parafest 2021. You, you must be scheduled for that, Alec. Um, no, I, I don't know if I'll be going this year. I'm not entirely sure yet. But um, oh, Okay. Well, I have, spoke, it, I have spoken it in the past. Yeah. Okay, anyway, we're working hard on our new book, uh, Behind the Paranormal 3, Uneasy Skies, also contributing will be our colleagues Shane uh, Alexander uh, and Valerie Lafaso, somebody you'll, you'll be hearing more about. Uh, the book will also contain the best of our interviews over the years with the greatest researchers in the UFO field, as well as some of our own experiences. Uh, look for the book released toward the end of the year. And you can check out our current books, uh, along with those of our other co-hosts at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Uh, where you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, uh, along with some of our 900-plus free recorded shows from our 12-plus years on the air, including for our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. So what's in the fridge for next week, Ben? Well, next week we have, uh, well, it's February 21st, and uh, we will have Emmy Award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author Lionel Friedberg. Uh, he makes his debut on the show to share some of his bizarre experience he has had in his 50 years of globetrotting, movie making, and all that in some of Earth's most remote regions, uh, and how everything a shaman told him turned out to be correct. There you go. And uh, just just a quick note that we're uh, 
uh, uploading uh, shows again to uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, the archive there. Uh, most of them are there. Uh, there will be over a thousand hours soon. And, we're, and our, our 900th show is coming up in June, and we're going to do something really special for that. So, so uh, make sure you uh, stick with us for that. We'll leave you today with a thought from that old darling 19th century American author Ralph Waldo Emerson. Common sense is genius dressed in its work clothes. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Radio Frequency, 167 hours from now. For another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.